0: This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Navarra Live. I am your host, Dahlia Gabriel, and joining me tonight is Michael Walker. Michael, how are you doing?
1: I'm very well. Pleasure to be joining you. Looks like we have a great show lined up.
0: Looking very uh, like an upstanding citizen there. I don't know what it is. You look very like neat and, and civilized. Um... Right, coming up later tonight, uh, Labour are scrambling to avoid a huge rebellion over a vote on a Gaza ceasefire. Julian Assange is facing his last chance to avoid extradition to the United States. And more on the ongoing atrocities being perpetrated by Israeli troops in Gaza. Right, on to our first story. The US has proposed a resolution to the United Nations Security Council opposing Israel's planned ground invasion into Rafah, where 1.5 million Palestinians are currently shielding from Israeli bombardment. The resolution also calls for the quote UN Security Council to underscore its support for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza as soon as practicable based on the formula of all hostages being released and calls for lifting all barriers to the provision of humanitarian assistance at scale. The move was described by UN Director Richard Gowan as a, quote, warning shot for Netanyahu, and it is the strongest reprimand the US has sent to Israel since the war began. Other than a few carefully worded expressions of discomfort at the high Palestinian death toll, the US has unconditionally and unequivocally supported Israel's assault on the Gaza Strip in multilateral institutions like the UN. And it has condemned the efforts of states like South Africa that have tried to use international law to hold Israel to account. However, whilst this move represents some departure from the status quo, it does come after the U.S. vetoed an Algerian resolution, which called for stronger, more decisive action, namely an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. So where does this, albeit slight, increase in U.S. pressure on Israel come from? Israel's plan to attack Rafah has been a diplomatic sticking point in the normally ironclad relationship between the US and Israel. The two allies have been uncharacteristically unaligned on public messaging. At the weekend, Biden publicly stated his expectation that Israel will not go ahead with the Rafah land invasion. But shortly after Biden's comments, Netanyahu pointedly responded with this.
2: Israel is going to fight until it reaches a total victory. And yes, it includes also operation in Rafa, of course, will enable those uh, citizens who are there to be evacuated to safe places. Because if you prevent us from acting in Rafah, you're actually saying, lose the war. And I'm not going to give a hand to that. Our military pressure works. We are closing on the Hamas in Hanunis. Recently, we came to places that the enemy never imagined we would get to. We shall not surrender to any international dictates regarding arrangements with the Palestinians. I said it in the cabinet, and I want to reiterate today, an arrangement will be obtained only in direct negotiations between the parties without any preconditions. Israel will continue to oppose a unilateral recognition. Despite
0: these divergences in public messaging, the U.S. continues to send military aid to Israel. Just last week, the Senate approved a $14 billion wartime aid package to Israel, and there have been no indications of any material consequences if they defy the U.S.'s resolution and go ahead with the Rafah invasion. Michael, are we seeing meaningful fissures in the relationship between the U.S. and Israel?
1: I don't think so at the United Nations. So when it comes to this sort of ceasefire motion that the the Biden administration have put forward, to me, this seems like a distraction tactic. So there was a meaningful motion calling for a ceasefire at the UN, which they vetoed, I think, for the third time. And obviously, Biden is under some pressure at home. And I think they wanted to say, well, we put forward our alternative motion for for a ceasefire. We weren't just being wreckers. You know, we had our own plans for, for peace in the Middle East. Why? I think that's nonsense, frankly is because they've said, we call for a temporary ceasefire and for all the hostages to be released. Now, the red line for Hamas, understandably, to be honest, I mean, obviously, international law says they should release all the, all the hostages, but international law says also Israel shouldn't be enacting collective punishment, right? So we have to look at the, the actors um, as they are actually behaving, as their incentive structures dictate. And for Hamas, their position is, we will let out the hostages if there's a permanent ceasefire. And the reason they say that is because the hostages are their only leverage, right? Um, So uh, as far as I understand it, I mean, these these negotiations take place in private, so there's always sort of briefing to various journalists. But as far as I understand it, Israel did offer a temporary ceasefire with all the hostages released. Now, the reason Hamas rejected that is because essentially that was Israel saying, you give us all the hostages, we'll wait six weeks, and then we'll completely destroy you and Gaza, right? So it's it's not an attractive deal um, to be offered. And what Hamas sort of offered in response was to say, let's have a permanent ceasefire um, and we'll exchange some prisoners for these hostages. right? And so uh, the international community basically has to settle somewhere on that spectrum and try and exert some pressure. And if the Americans are essentially taking the Israeli position, then they're not exerting any pressure on Israel and Netanyahu, regardless of what they say in public. It's also worth noting, I think we sort of slipped into this idea that it's, that total war is a normal response to hostage taking. Because I think you, you know you hear this from the Labour Front Bench as well. We'll get onto this. This idea that they could only possibly they can only stop this war if all the hostages are released. Now, obviously, hostages being taken, very bad. It's gonna be very worrying for the people of, of Israel. But hostages do get taken. You know, this is something which happens in international diplomacy and in life. And total war isn't a particularly normal response right? You might sort of send in some SWAT teams, or you might negotiate. And Israel does have a lot of leverage. So the idea if they stop the war, then they will have no leverage to get these hostages out is ridiculous. If they call a permanent ceasefire, and get the hostages out, they've got shed loads of leverage because they kidnapped loads of Palestinians, right? Israel's got this whole sort of armory of Palestinian hostages, which they can exchange for their ones. So the idea that, you know, that we hear from both the Biden administration and our government and the Labour opposition, which we'll get onto later in the show, um, that you could only possibly have a ceasefire once all the hostages are released, I think is, is, is silly. Um, in terms of where there might be some genuine fissures is on this issue of RAFA. And I don't think that's because of a genuine sort of concern for for the humanitarian conditions of the Palestinians. I think that is because all along, um, the United States have had a worry that Israel's maximalist aim is to essentially kick all of the Palestinians out of Gaza, um, cause a flood of Palestinians into Egypt. And the reason the Americans don't want that is because then this becomes a broader international problem. They're worried that that would destabilize Egypt. So... The Fishers, I think, are on this oncoming or incoming assault on on Rafa, and that's for practical reasons about regional stability. Any talk of a temporary ceasefire from the Americans in exchange for all the hostages being released is just them repeating um, the Israeli position as it has been for for weeks.
0: The particular thing that Rafa represents and why that perhaps does cross a boundary. I think you're completely right in saying that it's nothing to do with this with a sort of renewed interest by the U.S. government or value of, of Palestinian life. It's more that, you know, Israel's absolute number one priority is to expand its settler project, to replace Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, to forcibly displace Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, to en- enable Israel to settle that, that area. Um, and it is sort of willing to, and even quite titillated by the idea of that happening through a broader regional conflict it's willing to have a regional conflict in order to 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 be able to achieve that goal whereas perhaps the u.s is doesn't prioritize that as much and kind of does see a regional conflict as being something that would be would hamper their interests in the region so It's really, it's politics, really, rather than um, a kind of principle or a humanitarian principle that forced displacement is wrong. Um, Yeah, I think that that's probably a pretty unfortunate but accurate representation of where the pressure points here lie. But as the wheels of international institutions like the ICJ and the UN grind slowly, there are non-state actors taking more immediately impactful actions to disrupt Israel's assault on Gaza. An Indian trade union representing 3,500 workers at 11 ports instructed its members to refuse to handle military equipment being sent to Israel. In a statement announcing its decision, they said this. The Water Transport Workers' Federation of India has decided to refuse to load or unload weaponized cargoes from Israel or any other country which could handle military equipments and its allied cargo for war in Palestine. This comes after a group of the biggest trade unions in India called on their workers to boycott Israeli products, to refuse to handle Israeli cargo. And they also called for the government to scrap an initiative that would send thousands of Indian workers to Israel to replace Palestinian laborers. In doing so, the Indian labour movement is seeking to interrupt the flow of weapons and people that Israel relies upon to continue its assault on Gaza. At the weekend, uh, a British commercial ship was also badly damaged by a Houthi attack in the Bab al mandab Strait. This is the latest in a string of attacks taking place on essential trading routes in the Red Sea, which the Houthis say will not stop until the Israeli aggression and siege on Gaza is lifted. The British government has responded to these attacks by carrying out airstrikes on Yemen and relisting the Houthis as a prescribed terrorist organization. Michael, I don't know about you, but I found it kind of really difficult to watch, you know, as we see this genocide, this assault being live streamed in very graphic and granular detail. It feels like there is nothing we can do to stop it in real time. Um, even when you look at kind of these institutions like the ICJ and the UN, even when they are kind of, you know, they move very slowly. It's a very slow process and it feels like everyday life and infrastructure is being kind of irrecoverably lost. I mean, how do you, how do you feel about about that, watching that unfold?
1: I mean, it's very distressing. It'll be very distressing for for everyone watching this day after day after day. And I assume, you know, I don't assume, I mean, I know it will be incredibly distressing for Palestinians knowing that sort of no one can deny that they know what's going on here. The whole world can see this genocidal war taking place. um, And too many people are sort of willing to to look the other way. I think, you know, in terms of why it's not stopping, why Israel are able to get away with it is because they have some very powerful allies in the United States in countries like the United Kingdom and yes there has been sort of popular public pressure for them to distance themselves from from Israel and i think that you know that has been effective to some degree you know biden seems to be concerned about his re-election hopes and um, Starmer in this country obviously he's not the prime minister but he is the one feeling the pressure because the pressure generally comes from from the left on this issue um they are, you know, to some degree shifting their position. My concern, though, is that it's it, it's purely cosmetic because what you're seeing from these Western leaders is essentially them looking for plausible deniability. Oh yes, oh yes, it was a genocide war, but we did ask them not to invade Rafa. We did ask for a temporary ceasefire if Hamas released all the hostages, which they'll never do because then Israel would just destroy them in six weeks' time. You know, it, it it's purely cosmetic. There are though um material impacts being felt on Israel. So there's an article in the Financial Times yesterday saying the Israeli economy contracted by 20% um since October the 7th. Now lots of that will be to do with, you know, the number of people who have left their jobs um and gone into the army, um which will, you know, as one imagines, sort of causes economic activity to decline significantly. But I mean, I I'm sure that will also have something to do with disruptions of trade, um both in terms of the Houthis in the Red Sea. Um, but then also there are other countries in the world who are sort of more willing um, to, to make Israel feel some consequences when it comes to their sort of bombardment of, of, of Gaza. So, you know, we can assume that sort of Israel acts, you know, with complete impunity and doesn't feel any consequences. Now, to a large degree, that is true because of backing from the world's most powerful nation, the United States. But it doesn't mean that these sort of other pressures um being put on on israel are are completely irrelevant. the The country clearly is feeling um some pain um from this, even though most of it is assuaged by essentially Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak, and a bunch of European leaders.
0: On to our next story. Israel is facing increasing international pressure, even from its staunch allies to de-escalate its operations in Gaza from the ICJ's provisional measures to the US, at least in principle, opposing a planned invasion of Rafah, Yet IDF atrocities committed against people in Gaza continue to be broadcast onto our social media feeds. Last week, Israeli troops raided Nasser Hospital, which had been the largest functioning hospital in Gaza. Doctors and other medical staff were forced to leave the hospital, stripped down to their underwear, and wait in freezing conditions for hours. Several patients were reported dead after Israel cut off the hospital's electricity. This video from Al Jazeera shows what a team of UN doctors found upon entering the hospital after being denied access by Israel for several days.
3: This is the former emergency department of the National Medical Complex. And it's a death room. This place used to reconstruct limbs of patients that otherwise would be amputated. Now this place is no longer operational. We were shocked what we actually saw in the in, uh, in National Medical Complex. Uh, there's waste everywhere, electricity uh, was uh, was not working. not working. Parts of the hospital are damaged and some severely damaged. We're in the process of moving the last patient remaining. She was successfully extubated and she will continue her treatment in the uh, surgical ward in the old building. Now all medical team who remained at Nasser Hospital, already arrested. We don't have so much news from Nasser Hospital because Nasser Hospital became like a, like a military base for IDF. What is the humanity? Why this is happening to us? Why? I don't know. I don't know. How many? Ha- I don't know. For how long this will continue? For For how long? For how long? For how long? I don't know how many of us have to die. How many of us have to die just to listen to us, to stop these cries?
0: I don't know how much more footage of grown men being reduced to tears as they talk about trying to preserve life in this sort of death campaign. Like, I literally don't know how much more my heart can take. Al Jazeera also released this footage. It shows hungry children scooping up flour dropped by an aid truck and demonstrates the severity of the starvation crisis being imposed on Gazans by Israel's blockade of aid. Israel's blockade of Gaza has prevented adequate aid from entering the Strip, and when an aid truck does manage to get in, chaos understandably breaks out as people scramble to find food. And instead of allowing more aid to enter the region, Israel simply opens fire on people trying to feed themselves and their families. The particular instance that you saw in that clip where a bag of flour burst, at least one person was shot by the IDF and several admitted to hospital in their attempt to get hold of basic resources. So what we have here is the highest international court in the world, the most powerful legal instrument we have, it warned Israel that it must do everything in its power to prevent genocide. That included reining in its military operations, ensuring the provision of humanitarian aid, and submitting a report showing that it is doing everything it can to protect civilians. And yet, the world is literally watching the IDF switch off the electrical power that's keeping patients alive in hospitals, and attacking people trying to get access to the tiny amounts of international aid that it's being allowed to access the region. Israel seems to be on a mission to castrate even the mere remaining illusion that international accountability mechanisms exist. In fact, the only solid evidence that we have that Israel is heeding calls to prevent genocide is a communique issued by IDF chief of staff, Herzi Halevi, to his commanders. In it, Halevi states, we are not on a killing, revenge, or genocide campaign. And he asks commanders to quote, not shoot revenge videos. So on the one hand, we have mountains of footage and evidence from international human rights organizations and from Palestinians themselves, meticulously documenting how an entire population is being starved and indiscriminately killed. And on the other hand, a note, basically saying, be nice, and if you aren't being nice, then at least don't film it. Michael, how do you think on a kind of everyday level, people's illusions about things like human rights and the, the integrity of human rights, um, how do you think that that illusion is kind of being cracked on, the net, on, a, on a kind of everyday basis, particularly in Britain and the US? And do you think that's going to have an impact? Like, what do you think is the consequence of this kind of, like I said, like kind of castrating of the idea that there is an international accountability mechanism when such a huge scale um, violation of human rights is taking place.
1: Probably just overriding cynicism, right? And I mean, it's very interesting that this war is taking place at the same time as Russia's war on, on Ukraine. I mean, both of these wars, essentially, I think, you know, illegal colonial wars, right? Putin, yes, he had some complaints about NATO, but the guy invaded Ukraine um, and then, you know, th- doesn't seem to have acted in I mean, it, it's almost nonsense to talk about sort of the Geneva Conventions when he, he invaded. It, it's a war of aggression against a neighboring state, right? It, with the intention to annex part of it. So incredibly illegal. Couldn't really be more illegal, illegal uh, internationally. Um, Israel, they've occupied um Gaza, depending on your definition, for 76 or 57 or 56 years, um, according to, every, you know, everyone agrees they've been, occup- they've been occupying the, the occupied territories for 56 years, right? So that's, you can't really get more illegal than that. And now they are collectively punishing 2 million people. So you've got two cases that should really be quite similar in our minds when it comes to the morality of them. And I think, you know, what people have seen is that our political establishment, our media massively mobilized when it came to Russia's invasion of Ukraine to say, this is unacceptable. This is not what we should see in the 21st century. We have to unite and take really strong actions to um, force Russia to change its tune. That's going to include sanctions. It's going to include you know Russia getting kicked out of the Eurovision Song Contest and sort of all, all sorts of things. where it's sort of saying this is we need to draw a massive red line under this when it comes to Israel and Gaza. We might ask them a little bit nicely to be nicer, um, but we're still going to send them arms. Um, the, the idea that Israel should be kicked out of any kind of competition is itself anti-Semitic. It, it, I think it just gives an enormous sense of, of, of cynicism and double standards. And it will make it very difficult for Western countries. And I do think there are, you know, I, I'm not of the mind that the, the sort of move to, to, to defend Ukraine is, is purely cynical. I think it is useful to sort of be able to mobilize to some degree global opinion to say that invading a neighbor is unacceptable. But how the hell? And I mean, you know, this obviously isn't news to countries in in, in the global South. I think this is probably waking up, you know, populations in in the global North more than it is sort of a revelation to countries in the global South, because they are full um, or very much aware um, that when it comes to sort of the, the pretensions to be a moral force in the world, the West is very much inconsistent, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no, really depends on on the interests of the, the, the country at hand. So I don't think the double standards will be a surprise to many publics in, in the global South, but it is a wake up call to publics in the global North, um, that sort of the claim of Western governments to be moral arbiters of what is right and wrong in the world um, is very much contingent um, on the interests of, of 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 whichever government is in power in in those Western countries, and actually, to be honest, it's, that makes it sound like it's more democratically decided than it is. Because whoever was in power in in the United States, they would pretty much have the same policy, and with regard to this genocidal war by Israel on the Palestinians in Gaza.
0: Anecdotally, I would completely say that that's true. I think I remember when Russia invaded Ukraine. The kind of household conversations that are at least happening in a lot of Middle Eastern households, from what I know, is was this kind of sense of, and obviously this was before this latest assault on Gaza, um, but there was a lot of anger because not because of any particular investment in in you know taking a particular side in that war, but rather this sense of so we're now. The international community is mobilizing and condemning Russia for breaking international law, which, look, if we have international law, the only way that it's meaningful is if there is, you know, mechanisms of accountability that can be immediately mobilized. But they were all that they could think about was, but what about Iraq? Iraq was an illegal war and it went ahead and it claimed the lives of a million people. And there was a deep frustration and anger that... The same nations that illegally invaded Iraq were now getting on their high horse about the illegal invasion of Ukraine. When really, as you said, it shouldn't it shouldn't be that complicated. It should simply be if we have international law and if we have things that you know at least can if we have a, a, a at least the semblance of the idea that invading one country invading another and particularly an imperial power invading another country should be condemned. It has to be across the board. Otherwise, it's just politics rather than any kind of actual like reliable or form of accountability that has integrity. And it's that kind of um, crisis of legitimacy in the eyes of people, you know, in the global north that I think has really, that's what the shift has, has probably been. Um, But, you know, we'll have to wait and see. That's something, that's an ideological shift that I guess will take quite a long time to see the impact of it um, unfold. Let's move on to our next story, which is about Julian Assange. Political prisoner Julian Assange is facing what could be his last legal chance to avoid extradition to the U.S., These were the scenes outside London's Royal Court of Justice today, where two judges have begun hearing arguments from the WikiLeaks' founders' lawyers. They are asking for permission to lodge an appeal against Assange's removal to the US, and the court will decide on Wednesday whether Assange has the legal grounds to challenge earlier rulings backing extradition. If the court thinks he has a case, Assange will get another hearing on the merits of the extradition order. But the High Court might decide that there are no grounds for that appeal, in which case Assange will have no further legal avenues in the UK to prevent his extradition to the US. Assange's lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, gave Navarra Media her assessment of his case. We think we have really strong grounds for appeal. Obviously, the free speech elements of the case are super important. It's the first time in history a US publisher is being prosecuted for publishing information and prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Um, that is a real concern, but it remains to be seen. And if we're unsuccessful this week, if we don't get permission to appeal, this is our final appeal in the UK. We are prepared for the worst of all outcomes. We will apply to the European Court of Human Rights if we're unsuccessful this week. The road to this trial has been a long one for Assange, who has been held in Belmarsh prison since 2019. That followed seven years spent in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he was granted political asylum in 2012 against extradition to Sweden as part of a rape investigation. In 2019, Ecuador withdrew Assange's asylum. He was arrested by the UK authorities for breaching bail and sentenced to 50 weeks in prison. Soon after, Sweden dropped its investigation only for the US to request Assange's extradition a few months later. That means that Assange has spent most of his time in Belmarsh on no criminal charges in the UK, being held there as a quote, person awaiting extradition. For nearly four years following his initial 50 weeks prison sentence. According to his wife, Stella Assange, that imprisonment has had a disastrous effect on his health including a stroke in 2021. His lawyers have said he is too ill to attend the hearing in London today. Asked about Assange's imprisonment outside the court, Stella Assange said this.
4: He's been imprisoned for his journalism. He's in prison for almost five years in the UK's most notorious high security prison, Belmarsh. Um, And there is no way of righting this wrong.
0: Why do you think he has been public enemy number one of
4: these states for so long? Julian Julian exposed uh, the crimes of the West, and uh, he exposed the true catastrophe of the wars um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and and the complicity in torture, and so on. Uh, So, he's um, been the greatest contributor to public knowledge around Um, state criminality. And this is a retaliatory prosecution. Uh, It is a political persecution.
0: If extradited to the US, Assange will face 17 espionage charges and one charge of computer misuse, which basically means hacking. If found guilty, he could face a prison term of 175 years. U.S. prosecutors argue that Assange conspired with former U.S. military intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning to illegally leak classified diplomatic cables and documents from Pentagon computers. That leak resulted in the publication of hundreds of thousands of classified documents on WikiLeaks in 2010, with some of them revealing the extent of Western brutality in Iraq and Afghanistan wars. The leaks included this video from a U.S. Apache helicopter in Iraq recorded in 2007. It shows a pilot training his sights on a group of men walking in Baghdad. Among them are two Reuters reporters, Saeed Khemag and Namir Nur el din carrying their cameras. Moments later, the pilot says, light them up, shoot, and the helicopter fires on the group. At the time, the military stated that the men were shot because they were aiming machine gun fire and grenades at U.S. soldiers. Not only was that an outright lie, but the footage reveals even more disturbing details on the part of U.S. troops. When a van arrives to collect the injured and the dead, the Apache opens additional fire on the rescue operation. It later emerged that there were two children in that van and both were killed. At the time, the U.S. military claimed their forces were, quote, engaged in combat operations against a hostile force, end quote. This, as well as other documents leaked by Manning and published by WikiLeaks, provided evidence of war crimes committed by coalition forces in Iraq. And yet the only people who have ever been prosecuted are Manning, Assange, and other whistleblowers. Assange's lawyers argue that he was acting as a journalist, exposing wrongdoing by Western states and that he should be protected from U.S. prosecution by the press freedoms guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. Assange has so far escaped extradition to the U.S. over fears for his safety In January 2021, a British court blocked his removal to the States after it found that Assange would be at risk of suicide if held under harsh US prison conditions. A year later, the High Court ruled that assurances made by the US to keep Assange safe meant he could be extradited. And in March 2022, the UK Supreme Court refused to give Assange leave to appeal that decision. Finally, in June 2022, then-Home Secretary Priti Patel ordered Assange's extradition to the US. But extradition isn't the only danger Assange has faced. In 2021, Yahoo News revealed this. The CIA and members of Trump's administration have discussed plans to have Assange kidnapped or assassinated in 2017 while he was sheltering in the Ecuadorian embassy. And Declassified Australia has also now warned that while the US hasn't charged Assange with any crimes carrying the death penalty, the Department of Justice could add new charges if he's extradited. They write this. The US could argue that Assange's publishing activities constitute espionage as a capital offense because it involved disclosing information relating to elements of US defense strategy with intent to injure the United States or aid a foreign government, or communicating national defense information to the enemy in time of war. There is no prerequisite that anyone be killed as a result of the activity, which is the case here where the US is unable to prove that any person was killed or harmed as a result of Assange's publications. And since 1954, it doesn't matter whether the espionage was in peacetime or wartime. Assange continues to face huge dangers because of his exposure of Western crimes and complicity. Speaking outside the court, former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn gave his view on how Assange would be remembered by
3: history. As a very brave man, um, along with so many other great journalists who suffered and were imprisoned, those that exposed the Nazis in Germany in the 30s, those that exposed the corporate horrors in the United States in the 1930s and since then and those that have spoken up about secret prisons, about torture and everything else, I think he will always be known as the great journalist, the great investigative journalist, which is why it's so beyond disappointing the way almost the totality of the British media have either misreported or largely ignored this particular case.
0: Corbyn there being pretty critical of how the media has reported on Assange's case. And now a dissident journalist who revealed abuses of power, whose murder has been discussed by intelligence agencies, and who spent four years in prison without ever being convicted by a court, may be facing his last chance to avoid extradition to the US over fears for his safety. Fears, remember, that a British court ruled were warranted. So how did the UK papers cover the story this morning? This was today's Guardian front page. And here's the Times' cover story. And this is the front page of the digital version of the New York Times, all focusing on the death of leading Russian opposition figure and Putin critic, Alexei Navalny. So it looks like there's only one kind of dissident Western media is prepared to celebrate, namely those who aren't working to expose Our crimes. On to our next story. Labour's approach to the war in Gaza has been erratic, to say the least. In November, Keir Starmer threatened to sack any MP who voted in favour of an SNP motion demanding an immediate ceasefire. Just three months later, with another SNP ceasefire motion looming, he's changed his mind pretty radically. Labour is now calling for a quote immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. So why the change in approach? Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy gave this explanation.
3: Keir Steimer and I have been calling for weeks for the fighting to stop, for aid to get in. The situation has evolved and on the ground it is intolerable and the RAFA attack cannot go ahead. We are following our Five Eyes partners, Australia, New Zealand and Canada, who a few days ago made it clear that there has to be an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. We are mirroring that language and indeed the language now of the United Nations. Everyone wants the fighting to stop.
0: So, according to Lamy, the situation has evolved and on the ground it is intolerable. So wasn't the situation in Gaza intolerable yesterday, last week, last month? Can you think of a single day in the past three months when the situation on the ground in Gaza has been tolerable? But maybe that's not the situation Lammy is talking about. Look, I don't really care why the Labour Party is calling for a ceasefire now. I'm just glad that they're finally doing it. But I don't like being lied to and I don't like being gaslit. The real reason behind Labour's shift in position is that Keir Starmer wants to avoid embarrassment, although I would argue unsuccessfully. Last week, when the SNP tabled a new ceasefire motion, the party's Westminster leader, Stephen Flynn, said this.
3: We need a ceasefire and we need it now. Since the Israeli bombardment of Gaza began, some 30,000 civilians have been killed, some 70,000 people have been injured, and 90% of the population is close to starvation. In Rafah." an area which is usually home to 170, 180,000 people. 1.4 million people are currently there. And they are under bombardment from the Israeli Defense Force. It's quite clear that enough is enough. We need the UK, we need the US, and we need all of Israel's allies to speak out in favor of a ceasefire. So this week, SNP MPs will be bringing forward a motion to the House of Commons to back an immediate ceasefire. History will judge all of us by our words and by our actions. It's time for MPs to take a stand and back a ceasefire.
0: That motion will be debated on Wednesday and given that Starmer faced a major Labour rebellion the last time the SNP tabled a ceasefire motion, he's keen to avoid a second run-in with his MPs and their constituents. Speaking to The Guardian ahead of that vote and before Labour's ceasefire announcement, one MP said this, I suspect it will be far more than the 56 who rebelled last time, especially given Scottish Labour's position and how many more MPs are really under pressure on this now. Another MP told The Guardian, quote, I hope we end up in a better position than last time. We need to not get into the same position as last time, by which he means over 50 Labour MPs rebelling against the whip. The brewing labour crisis also came in the context of a schism between Westminster and the Scottish Labour Party. That's after the Scottish party conference unanimously backed Scottish leader Anna Sawar's call for a ceasefire in Gaza earlier this week. All that pressure coming from every side now seems to have forced Keir Starmer to do this. So instead of backing the SNP motion, the Labour Party has now published its own amendment. And the amendment calls for a halt to Israel's threatened ground offensive in Rafa. And it demands the return of all hostages and an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. The SMP's motion uses stronger language calling for an immediate ceasefire and accusing Israel of using collective punishment against civilians. So it's not entirely clear what the difference between a humanitarian ceasefire, which is what labor is calling for, and just, a hum- and just a ceasefire, um, but the implication and the way that it's been used has typically been to mean um, that a humanitarian ceasefire is a pause to allow humanitarian aid to enter, um, whereas just a ceasefire has typically been used to mean just an end to hostilities and an end to the attacks and the violence. So Labour hasn't yet said what it will do, if the SNP motion passes, but they have said that they will whip their MPs to abstain on it. However, the Tories have also thrown their own fox amongst the parliamentary procedural pigeons. ITV's deputy political editor has said this. The government are putting down an amendment on tomorrow's SNP motion, and some whips in Parliament are suggesting that only one amendment will be chosen in this situation, the government one, meaning Labour could be unable to push theirs whatever happens, the SNP has managed to do what thousands of Labour voters couldn't, namely get Keir Starmer to grow a spine. And on that, this was what Scottish First Minister Hamza Youssef had to say. Pressure from the SNP has forced Labour to change their position on Gaza, which I welcome. I'm proud of my party for being Westminster's conscience and consistently advocating for an immediate ceasefire. It's important the whole House now backs an immediate end to the violence. Michael, what do you make of Labour's attempt to continue to play politics at this juncture, especially when the stakes are this high?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're potentially being too kind to Keir Starmer when he says he's, he's grown a backbone. I mean, I, I know you you weren't showering him with praise in this segment, but I mean, I, I don't think we've even gone that far. So the difference between sort of the SNP motion and and, and the Labour motion, yes, there is this word, Humanitarian ceasefire, as opposed to just ceasefire, um, and there's also the labor motion appears to put loads more conditions in. So it's it's a very long motion, and it says, you know, we want an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. We want Israel to be assured that an, a, an event like October the seventh could never happen again. Um, we want da 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 da. And what that seems to mean is that if you don't have all of the clauses met, then Israel are justified in not bringing about a ceasefire. And what does that mean? Obviously, we would all like um, Israel to not be subject to any kind of October the 7th style attack again. I don't think many people think it was particularly productive and innocent people died, right? But Netanyahu would argue that's the whole point of this war. So he would say, I am still going to continue to bombard um, the entire Gaza Strip because that's the only way to make sure that Israel or Israelis are never fearful of a kind of October the 7th style attack again, right? Now, I would say, you know, October the 7th was only able to happen because their border control was, was all shifted to the West Bank to defend their settlers. And because there is a conflict in the first place, because Israel haven't agreed to any kind of Palestinian state. But um, Netanyahu has a very different position. And so he can, I mean, I don't think Netanyahu is reading Labour motions in the House of Commons. But if Labour were the government, and they were sort of putting this to the UN, for example, then Israel could say, fine, yeah, yeah, we, we also want a ceasefire. But we can't call for a ceasefire or we can't bring about a ceasefire until Israelis can be absolutely assured that October the 7th can't happen again. So basically, by, by, by making a short motion, which the SNP put down into a very, very long motion, what the Labour Party have done is, is give the Israelis loads of get outs. Oh, yes, of course, everyone wants a ceasefire, but we'll only have a ceasefire once Hamas released the hostages, once um, Hamas are essentially destroyed, you know, all, all of these, um, you know, thresholds. Frankly, aren't going to be met unless Israel also gives up something in return. I suppose this also sort of feeds into this idea of is the is the ceasefire a humanitarian ceasefire or, or just a ceasefire? And I suppose the humanitarian ceasefire that to me suggests Israel's war is legitimate, but the costs have become too high. Right, so war is a legitimate way for Israel to try to achieve its aims here, but the cost is too high, and therefore let's have a humanitarian ceasefire. Whereas um, my position essentially is that this is not a legitimate war, right? It's not legitimate to say, well, they've taken some hostages, so therefore we are going to destroy um, all of their hospitals, all of their cities. To me, that's an act of collective punishment. So we don't just want a ceasefire for, for humanitarian reasons. We want a ceasefire because this war is unjust. And I think that does have practical implications as well, because essentially I think what Labour is suggesting is that War is still a legitimate means for for Israel to achieve its ends. Now I say everyone should put down the guns right now and things will still be unresolved. Hamas will still have the hostages. Israel will still have shed loads of of Palestinians who who they are holding um, without trial. There's going to have to be some negotiations for swaps there. Um, Israel will still be blocking any kind of Palestinian state. Uh, Maybe they're going to have to offer that to get some of those hostages back. Right, So, there will have to be negotiations, but I don't think Israel should have as a bargaining chip, or we will keep keep killing hundreds of people every day, which is essentially, you know, Labour essentially saying that is a legitimate bargaining chip, unless you were saying we want an unconditional ceasefire. Now, obviously, it has to involve, you know, Hamas not shooting their rockets either, but they've been open to that the whole time, right? It, by calling for an immediate ceasefire, what you were saying is that a negotiation needs to happen. And we will keep killing 100 people a day is not a legitimate bargaining chip to bring to that table. And I think, you know, Labour aren't pushed on this because we have a, a media who who tend to ask more about, um, you know, oh, 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 what about the hostages instead of what about the hundreds of Palestinians dying every day? Um, but but there we are. In terms of the government putting forward this motion, so they have put forward a motion which is even weaker. They want a temporary ceasefire, um, potentially leading to a longer ceasefire. So sort of very you know, almost exactly the same as the Israeli position fundamentally, um, they're putting that forward. That means that the Labour motion probably won't be heard. Um, so Labour have now got to decide do they whip against um their MPs voting for the substantial SNP ceasefire motion, or do they do exactly what they did last time and and, and find themselves um holding out actively against a ceasefire in Gaza?
0: If you were to kind of look into your crystal ball. Um, How do you think that this process is going to shake out with these kind of competing um, amendments?
1: I would say Labour will whip to abstain on the SNP motion and they will whip to support the government motion. And then they'll go out on the media and say, look, we think the Conservative one is a bit too weak. Um, We think the SNP one uh, doesn't put forward the interests of the Israelis to such a degree. We had the Goldilocks motion. Um, but unfortunately, because of parliamentary procedure, it wasn't able to be voted on. Now, there will, and and this is will will backbench MPs buy that is the question. And so, will sort of Labour be able to um, push back or, or, let's say, limit um, a, a a rebellion the size of the last time around, or potentially an even bigger rebellion? Now, that comes down to the incentive structures of of MPs. And I would say, you know, an MP who is being sincere, honest, and when it comes to this question would, would say, well, it's only the SNP motion that's any good, let's vote for that. But there will be lots of Labour MPs who aren't really looking to vote for the perfect motion. They're looking for something they can go back to their constituents and say, so lots of Labour MPs have constituents who are very passionate about this issue. So they, they're not going to be looking which is the best motion. They're going to be looking, can I sell what Keir Starmer is telling me to my constituents? And so mm-hmm. if, if Keir Starmer is, and, and you know, the Labour frontbench can sort of persuade the MPs, no, we, this, this is a decent argument you can tell your people, um, then some of them might sort of fall behind Keir Starmer and say, oh no, we do want the ceasefire. We would have voted for the Labour one. Um, but the SNP one, uh, apparently Keir Starmer is upset because it includes um, a, a statement that Israel are guilty of collective punishment of the Palestinians, which is very obvious from everything they've said and everything they've done. As I say, w- we need to be clear that a legitimate and normal response to hostages being taken isn't to kill thirty thousand people, right? I th- I, we, I think, we have normalized this. Oh yes, of course they've 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 destroyed the, all of the all of the cities of of Gaza and killed twelve thousand kids because Hamas took some hostages. Yes, taking hostages is wrong, but this is if you look at all sort of the history of all the modern history of warfare. Let's say, um, sort of destroying cities you know the ransacking of carthage this this might be how war worked you know 2000 years ago but if you're looking at modern practices of war and what we should consider normal then destroying the homes of 2 million people because a couple of hundred hostages have been taken that's not a normal response and i think it it has become part of political common sense at least if you listen to you know the labor party the conservative party um the president of the united states that this is a normal thing to do, and it's not. That is collective punishment.
0: Mm, And I think, well, judging from how things fell last time, uh, when basically to many of these Labour MPs' constituents, the headline was Labour MPs vote against a ceasefire. That, That was kind of the headline, and I think that, I wonder if these MPs will be as willing to try and take these kind of, as you said, like Goldilocks style, you know, oh well, I agree, I, I'm pro a ceasefire. You know, I remember um people who lived in constituencies where their MP had said, you know, I'm pro a ceasefire, but voted against the motion. I don't know, think that their constituents really bought that. And so I wonder if those very same MPs will be willing to kind of test their constituents in that in that way again finally before we finish uh obviously you know in the moment that we're in we have to spend a lot of time showing footage and images and describing unimaginable brutalities taking place against the Palestinians. So we thought that it would be worth showing this story from Al Jazeera, which shows in a makeshift camp in Dir el Balah, a couple have managed to have a wedding after being forced to flee the Shujaya neighborhood in Gaza City. And I really wanted to show you this just because of also some of the things that the couple have said. They said, we left our home amidst bombardment um, and gunfire seeking refuge here, therefore postponing their our wedding. They had gotten engaged before this um, latest genocidal assault on Gaza happened. They said, they we had, we had hoped to wait until the end of the war to celebrate, but with no end in sight, we decided to celebrate amidst simplicity um our joy today feels incomplete we had hoped for calmness to celebrate in a grand event hall and to return to our apartment now destroyed by bombings we had dreamed of a wedding under normal circumstances in a beautiful dress but the ravages of war took everything from us our home our belongings all destroyed um sort of two things that strike me there one is this insistence on life amidst Deathly destruction amidst a a campaign of assault that seems to have extermination and death at its as its main operating logic, but also just this idea that, you know, Palestinians are neither the villains that the media makes them out to be, nor these magical people that can withstand unimaginable amounts of violence and still kind of um, you know, be okay all the time and show this i know that we want to see that kind of resilience it gives us hope but also they are trying to achieve simple human things in unimaginably inhumane circumstances and i think showing that i don't know something about that image of this couple who love each other and just want to have what everyone has making the most out of the moment that they're in um to be a real just a very moving moving image um Which I wanted to share with you because it's not all about showing Palestinians being brutalized. And we also want to show the kinds of beauty and life that Palestinians make um, amidst the destruction. So, thank you, Michael, so much for joining me tonight. Thank you. Um, It's been really nice to spend this evening with you.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Um, do come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night.
1: This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to com slash support.